what if you had a battle and nobody came? Well, that didn't quite happen, but you could have a battle with neither commanding general knowing about it. We'll find out how that did happen when we return with our guest, Ken No, author of Perryville, This Grand Havoc of Battle, and Civil War Talk Radio. Are you a busy event planner, an auction chair, or development coordinator? Well, AuctionHelp.com is designed for you. Find out why hundreds of nonprofit organizations just like yours have chosen AuctionHelp.com to take the stress out of the benefit auction process. Hi, I'm Russ Dolnack, professional auctioneer, and I'm also someone who can help you coordinate your next auction. That's right. We have a special staff of auction management experts to give you that auctioneer to, to get the right person behind the microphone that will encourage your guests to be generous. We can also meet with your auction committee throughout the whole planning process. We're going to give you helpful hints that could add as much as 25% to next year's totals. We're going to train and monitor your auction volunteers the night of the event. We're going to help you run your auction, including the registration, the data entry, the filing, the cashiering, the recording, where to get those valuable items, how to develop your audience, and all those things. Log on, auctionhelp.com. We're here to help with your next Next auction. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations. Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest today is Kenneth No, author of Perryville, This Grand Havoc of Battle. And we've been talking about the Perryville campaign of 1862. Uh, a sort of western version of Lee's invasion of Maryland that ends at Antietam. Here we have Bragg's invasion of Kentucky. And we've been talking about the campaign up to the moment of battle, the morning of October 8th. The two armies uh, are in proximity to one another, but not necessarily aware of it, uh, at least not completely. Uh, Is that a fair uh, summary of where we are? It's a very fair summary. You have a comedy of errors going on. On the Confederate side, you have an absolute belief that most of the Union Army is somewhere else. On the Union side, you have all sorts of confusion, uh, much of which is just endemic to the Army of the Ohio, something you know from your work as, as well as I do from my own research. Buell has lost the support of most of his soldiers and many of his officers who will actually meet on the night of the 7th to uh, discuss trying to get Washington to overturn his command. 
the Army stumbles toward Perryville because of these drought conditions we talked about earlier in very bad shape. Men are moving slowly. There's much insubordination in the lines. There are all sorts of problems. One of the problems, if I can ask you this, is the Army is divided into three corps at this mm-hmm. point. Uh, you have the best soldier in the Army, George Thomas, not commanding any of those corps. And you've got uh, a fellow named Gilbert in charge of one of them. Uh, what is his story? Trying to piece together Charles Gilbert's story was one of the trickier parts of my research. Charles Gilbert was a captain. Uh, during the retreat from the Battle of Richmond, uh, desperate for some competent officer to organize and control that retreat back to Louisville, a lot of the uh, political generals in the Union Army who were at Richmond uh, essentially wanted Gilbert placed in charge. At some point, and it's still rather murky as to how it happened, uh, Gilbert is named acting major general. Eventually, Congress and the president will uh, give him promotion to brigadier general, although in the end there's some question about as to whether that was even formally approved. But anyway, Gilbert puts on the two stars almost immediately and starts acting like a major general. He's close to Buell. He had uh, uh, served as Buell's inspector general earlier. And he got command of Third Corps after the murder of the intended commander, Bull Nelson, by Jefferson C. Davis in the lobby of the Galt House in Louisville, another one of those bizarre events that just convulsed the command structure of the Army of the Ohio before they marched down to Perryville. When I was writing about the Army of the Ohio, one of the things I enjoyed was reading the the letters of the men, and you've you've certainly done the same thing in your work where you you go through dozens, hundreds, a thousand letters of these, these people. And in writing about the murder of Nelson, the unanimity of the Army of the Ohio was astonishing. Mm-hmm. There was not one soldier who expressed the slightest dismay or sadness or regret that this had happened. I especially love the guy who wrote his father and said that uh, I wish I could quote it exactly. Uh, Nelson was shot, wounded, uh, baptized, died, moved on to heaven, but I don't think he made it there. He was very <laughs> disliked. There were all these bizarre stories about Nelson especially at Richmond, riding around beheading, uh, retreating soldiers from Indiana, which, of course, is ridiculous. The problem was he had said many bad things about Indiana, which really ticked off both Oliver Moore and the governor of Indiana. And Jefferson C. Davis, uh, the culmination of that feud was the shooting of Nelson. I've described Nelson as one of those people who has that uh, that governor we all have in our brain that tells us don't say the first thing that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. He didn't have one of those. Plus, he was Navy. We forget that. I mean, True. he was not a veteran Army officer. He was a Navy officer, which meant that he learned how to express his anger in all sorts of interesting and creative ways. Uh, my grandfather was in the Navy, and trust me, he, he <laughs> knew some phrases that I've never heard from anyone else. Uh, well, it, it, it came back to haunt Nelson, finally. It did. So, now you so we've got Nelson removed. Yeah. You mentioned Thomas. Thomas is in an unenviable position. Thomas has had problems with Buell going back to the retreat from northern Alabama and Tennessee. Thomas has wanted to fight. Um, Buell has wanted to protect his supply line, falling back to Nashville and then Louisville. Uh, I think Thomas, by the end of September, was pretty disenchanted with Buell. Uh, There were a lot of people in Washington. There's actually a moment when Lincoln and Halleck offer Thomas command of the Army unless uh, you're in 
preparation to fight the enemy, Thomas realizes that the army is getting ready to march out and fight. So he turns down the position. Uh, it's a remarkable thing for a career officer to do. It is. It is. And I think there are probably lots of things going on there. Part of it was that he was an Army officer who, who felt that he had to be loyal to his commanding officer. Here's Buell planning a campaign. It was hardly the time to replace a general. At the same time, Buell, I think, distrusted Thomas enough that uh, in the reorganization of the Army that followed, he made Thomas second in command, which of course gave him very little command at all, and basically sent him off with uh, Thomas Crittenden's corps. Now, on the day of the battle, Thomas is making some of the decisions that Crittenden should be making for his corps. But in fact, the Second Corps is largely isolated from the battle and barely participates. So in the end, it doesn't amount to much. I think Buell had pushed his men so hard, and without obvious reason, he had uh, not fought when he could have fought so many times in this campaign that Thomas justifiably assumed that there probably wouldn't be much of a fight on October 8th either. And what happens is that both Thomas and Crittenden with Second Corps and Alexander McDowell McCook with First Corps, also approaching Perryville from different directions, uh, just arrive late. They arrive very late. They're not moving into position until the morning of the 8th. And indeed, they're so far behind Buell's timetable, and Buell is a perfectionist, that he decides to call off the attack and just launch it the next morning, launch it on the 9th. Buell has this singular ability to believe that the enemy will always sit there and wait for him to unfold his plans. On top of that, I should mention, too, Buell's not in very good physical condition on the day of the Battle of Perryville. Buell is a practitioner of um, what folks like Mark Grimsley call soft war, trying to win over the hearts and minds of Southern people. Well, it's even more important to him in states still in the Union, like Kentucky. On the evening of the 7th, he comes across an Illinois regiment that's raiding a farmer's field. Buell rides into the field pulls out his sword, tells these men to disperse. One of these soldiers grabs the bridle of Buell's horse. The horse throws Buell. Buell's not seriously injured, but he's awfully darn sore, and he will actually spend nearly all day on the 8th, as far as we can tell, on a cot on his back, reading a book, uh, not even able to hear the battle because of the uh, phenomenon of acoustic shadow, which... Uh, muffles all the musketry coming from the east. Everyone who rides into Buell's headquarters, even late in the day when they're riding in to desperately ask for more troops to ask for more reinforcements, finds Buell on his back reading his book, and his usual reaction is to offer them something to eat. Buell is, is I mean, he really is a curious character in, in a lot of ways. One of the things I read about him in this situation was that he refused to have uh, the surgeon bathed his, his injuries because there wasn't enough water for his men. And thus he was not going to be wasteful in his use of water, which is a great command gesture, mm -hmm. except nobody knew about it. Nobody knew about it, and what people knew about was quite the opposite. There were occasions on the march uh, up into Kentucky where a lot of water holes were cordoned off for officers only. That's what soldiers knew about uh, and wild rumors spread through that army. I mean, ridiculous things, but rumors that soldiers apparently did believe. They finally concluded that they weren't trying to fight Bragg's army on the way into Kentucky because 
Buell was a traitor. One of those. There was uh, Bragg and Buell spent the night together uh, before the battle, was one of those rumors. Yes, they're supposedly brothers in law, according (laughs) to the rumor. They're sleeping together every night. They're meeting out there somewhere and cozying up together and discussing how to avoid battle the next day. When I first read that, I laughed. I think the 10th or 15th time I read it, I thought, good heavens, this was widely believed. They despised the guy. And, and how else could they explain? You put yourself in the soldier's shoes. You've been marching these hundreds of miles. Mm-hmm. The enemy's right there on the next parallel road, and nothing ever happens. Every time they see dust clouds, the army stops. There's never a fight. Right. So on the 8th, surely there will be no fight, we think. I think that was widespread. Um, eventually, when... Bragg arrives, and I'm jumping ahead, uh, perhaps sure. I shouldn't, but there is a moment uh, late in the morning where Bragg is trying to adjust his lines. Uh, they've been poorly put together by Polk, and so you have Benjamin Franklin Cheatham's division, which had been on the south end of the Confederate line, actually moving out, moving up to reinforce the north end of uh, the Confederate right. Um, and there are a lot of uh, Union officers, generals, uh, their aides, you see these dust clouds and automatically assume that Bragg is retreating. There he goes again. No one's really expecting much of a fight on the Union side until the attack actually begins. So the the Confederates do spend the morning deploying, but, well, I guess there's some fighting in the morning as well. There is. There is. And that's that's usually the moment that's described as the fight for water. I guess the best way to set it up is this. If, if you imagine a clock face with Perryville at the center, uh, the Union Army is, is approaching Perryville on three separate roads. Uh, McCook's First Corps is coming down from the northwest from about 11 o'clock. They'll start arriving during the morning. Uh, coming up from about 7 o'clock is Thomas and Crittenden with Second Corps, and they will arrive even later in the morning than McCook. Uh, Gilbert with Third Corps has actually arrived the night before on the Springfield Road, which is coming from about 9 o'clock and they stop about four miles outside of town. Uh, There they face uh, at least an element of the Confederate Army. Um, Polk has aligned most of the Confederate Army during the evening and night, really right through town. But he's advanced St. John Liddell's Arkansas Brigade uh, down the Springfield Road to the area of a place called Bottom Hill for a fellow named Sam Bottom who lived there. And he's pushed another regiment 7th Arkansas, even further, up to another hill, Peters Hill. And uh, these hills are within sight of uh, Gilbert's men when they um, go to bed on the night of the 7th. They can see water. They're reporting water in Doctor's Creek, which is a tributary of of the Chaplain River. So about 2 o'clock in the morning, Buell, um, Gilbert, Phil Sheridan's involved, uh, eventually order a brigade forward to try to seize what seems to be an undefended hill uh, and seize the water. This movement begins in earnest uh, a little before dawn. And so from dawn until about 10 o'clock in the morning, there's this fight going on in the uh, Peters Hill bottom hill area, essentially for possession of that water, some springs as well as uh, the stagnant water in Doctors Creek. And it grows. It begins to uh, pull more and more men in. I often compare it to the first day of Gettysburg, except that at a certain point, around 10 o'clock, 
uh, Polk refuses to send in any more reinforcements and pulls his Confederates back and surrenders that area. By this time, Polk has figured out that there are a lot more Federals out there than he even thought. So instead of attacking, as Bragg wanted him to do, he falls back into a defensive position to wait and see what the enemy will do. So the fighting, the, the Peter Hill fighting, as it's usually called, uh, is really over by 10 o'clock, and that's the end of uh, not all the fighting out on the Springfield Road, but most of it. So now the battle, as far as the Union forces are concerned, is, is over. They've, they've held this hill. They've got mm -hmm. some water. Uh, the, the Thomas and Crittenden aren't up close enough to attack. McCook's still arriving. Right. So there's not going to be any more fighting today. In they the certainly Union don't think so. Thomas even refuses to report to uh, Gill's headquarters as ordered. He sends an aide instead. Um, Bragg but, uh, arrives. Yes, the Confederates have a different view. Bragg arrives about the same time. He rides into town about 10:30. He had actually planned to ride north from Harrisburg that morning and join Kirby Smith. You know, that's where most of Buell's army is supposed to be. But when he wakes up, he doesn't hear any gunfire coming from Perryville. So he takes his aides. He rides south down to Perryville. Arrives in town about 10:30. And discovers not only has there been no attack, but what fighting has occurred has ended because Polk has called it off and fallen back into this defensive position. Uh, it's uh, not a pleasant meeting, apparently. Uh, Bragg is by all accounts furious. When he rides out to uh, examine the line that Polk has created, he's even angrier because the right flank of the Confederate Army is absolutely in the air. Worse yet, there's this gap which now exists between the flank and the Chaplin River. And who is appearing on the hills opposite that gap but federal troops? It's the initial wave of McCook's First Corps arriving. They have no intentions of attacking, but I think we can understand why Bragg thinks that that's what they're doing. That's when he orders the movement of, of Cheatham's division over to the right to, to fill this gap. And when they start moving in that dry weather, dust is flying anywhere, huge dust clouds. That's when the Union command really assumes that there's not going to be any fighting. And so they settle in, men are uh, making coffee, relaxing, um, when the actual attack begins. And it has the same impact. Now, the attack roughly around 2 o'clock in the afternoon by the Confederate right wing against McCook's Corps mm -hmm. resembles uh, in some ways uh, Jackson at Chancellorsville or uh, the Confederates at Shiloh, the, the surprise attack that overruns an unprepared position. Exactly, exactly. Only this time the Federals are fortunate in that, without any real planning or even coordination, they place themselves in position where they can if not completely repel the attack, at least to defend their position for a while. There's been an artillery duel from about 12.30 until 1.30. Uh, the attack was supposed to begin at 1.30. Uh, when it doesn't happen, Bragg again goes looking for Polk and discovers that more and more federal troops have arrived. This means shifting the Confederate Army even farther north uh, into a, a bend in the river uh, called Walker's Bend. It was actually a pretty bad place to put an army in to move up some pretty steep bluffs to actually get in position to attack. About 145 Confederate cavalry goes out to make sure that the Union flank is open so that they can stage a flank attack. Just 
absolutely bad timing for the Confederates. Had those cavalrymen rode out five or ten minutes later, they would have seen more and more Federals coming into position. As it was, they missed them. So the Confederates, instead of hitting an open flank, charged into a hellish position where they're being hit on the left, in front, and on their right. Now, I know who's going to win this battle, because I've read your book, and I've written a little bit about it myself. Mm -hmm. But I'm still uh, just on, on the edge of my chair with anticipation. We've got to the, uh, the Confederate attack is pitched in now. The Union lines are beginning to reel under this unexpected assault. And it's time to take our last break. So we'll be back in a few minutes to find out who wins the Battle of Perryville on Civil War Talk Radio. Don't change that channel. <laughs> 